Surrounding the Earth, and today we have uh, a special guest who is taking a, a step toward uh, trying to fix the mess that we're in, and, and hopefully he can. Um, uh, his name is Liam Madden, and he is running for Congress. And I'm going to bring him uh, into the studio right now, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what's going on and, and and what kind of motivation, what what makes a person want to run for for Congress and be around all those people in Washington. Hi, Liam. Hi, Matt. Why don't you give yourself a, a better introduction? Uh, you've got uh, a background um, in in the military and in business, but I'm going to let you explain all that for our audience. Sure. Um, so I, I would start with what what would motivate you. It's been, it's really the same for everybody. I think even people we disagree with, it's it's that you care, right? You care about the future. You care about uh, the beauty of life and the health and vitality of the natural world of your human communities. Um, so that's what motivates, I think, everybody. But I, um, uh, I do have a background from Vermont. So that's where I'm running for office. We have one lone congressional seat here. And when I got out of high school, I was looking for some structure in my life, pretty sure that I was not mature enough to invest in college wisely and get a lot out of it. So I joined the military, I joined the United States Marine Corps in um, in August of 2002, went to boot camp in January of 2003. We all know what happened in March of 2003 is the United States invaded Iraq. Um, I was pretty skeptical about the, the merits of that military inter intervention, but I also knew like, hey, the last time we were in Iraq, it was uh, a couple weeks of, of fighting. <laughs> so maybe I shouldn't let this, this concern get the best of me. Um, one thing leads to another, of course, I, I deployed to Iraq in 2004 and 2005. And uh, when I get home, I, I felt a bit like a good German. Like, like how is it possible that the uh, people I know, the, the United States caring, open-hearted, down-to-earth people have been like swept up in this wave of propaganda. You probably recall there was little yellow bumper stickers saying support the troops was really meant uh, if you don't support the war, you're a traitor. That was the undertone of support the troops. <laughs> and, and if you don't support the, the war, you don't support the troops. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And that, that 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 one always frustrated me. Like, like I can't support the human beings who are, you know, part of you know, part of the protection force of my country without supporting a, a politician's war. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I felt like the only the only thing that separates uh, us from <laughs> going down the same kinds of paths that we see in history as just despicable totalitarian was people willing to take risks to sacrifice the comfort of their in-group, sacrifice the comfort of uh, psychological safety and to, to put themselves out there where it was not safe to be. So I started an organization, I started organizing fellow military members to do really the only thing that was allowed for us to do, because you can't protest, you can't do petitions, but you can sign appeals to your congressman. And so <clears throat> I gathered uh, a couple thousand other 
uh, service member signatures and delivered to Congress. It's made like kind of a big deal at the time. And then I very shortly after got out of the military, honorably discharged, and uh, got involved in an organization called Iraq Veterans Against the War. That took up a big chunk of my 20s being a peace activist. And that will burn you out being against. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So ever since then, I've had a, uh, a tag, a quote at the end of my email signature that is Buckminster Fuller. It says, to change something, you never fight the existing reality, build a new model that makes the old model obsolete. I uh, got involved in entrepreneurship after that, kind of figuring like, what do I want my creative energies to be going towards? Um, Basically, everything since then has been, well, how can the natural world and the human world be better partners on this whole joint enterprise? And uh, I won MIT's, or co-won MIT's Solve Award for business models that uh, help with climate change, help with sustainability more generally. So did you did you go to school at MIT? After no, I went to school at Northeastern University and... Uh, the solve contest was just an open business model competition from not just college students, not any college students, actually just, just, um, businesses throughout the country. Oh, I see. I got it. So you're a young entrepreneur and you go there to, to show off, you know, what you're, what you're doing. Um, yeah. okay. Got it. Um, and so that, that brings us up to uh, a couple of years ago. Then I moved back to Vermont, just get involved in, um, kind of more nuts and bolts types of, uh, projects. I, I work, I'm an employee. I'm the head of the, Direct uh, the director of solar energy here at a, a local company in southern Vermont, and then the pandemic happens, and I'm a gas. That's how I I know you um, from just paying attention to the people who were skeptical about what was going on, and finding um, one of your articles about how the statistical signals can be manipulated. And I just I felt so. Uh, just a very similar to my, my experience of being a Marine against the war. You know, when you find someone else who is thinking similar to you in an environment where it's not safe <laughs> to be a, dis, a, a dissenter, uh, you go, oh, my God, these people are my tribe. Uh, so I've been, I've been re a reader of yours for uh, a couple of years. Um, the, the piece about how Surgisphere, that, that whole hydroxychloroquine um, data scandal, uh, how else fraud is the only way I can put it, um, put you on my radar. And then uh, shortly after that, uh, there was an opening, the incumbent politician here in Vermont, who's been a, a representative for over 16 years, is vacating his seat to, to try and run for Senate. So that created an opportunity where I felt like uh, I'm, I'm called to create more and better options for how we do politics. And I, I ran as an independent and I actually won a major party primary. I won the Republican primary um, because you, there's really no, no path to credibly get on the general election ballot with any chance to win unless you take one of the spots of one of the, the party um, major parties. So uh, that's what I did. Um, okay, so, so you're an independent, but you were able to run in the Republican primary and win that primary. Vermont's an open primary state so you don't have to be a registered republican i was just incredibly upfront the entire election every public appearance or debate like hey guys i'm an independent and it was a three-way race um i got 41.5 percent of the vote and then the next person down got like 31 percent of the vote so a plurality um 
but yeah, I, an independent won the Republican primary. Well, congratulations. That means you connected with some voters. So, um, you know, what, what are your, your primary messages? Uh, you, you've told us you're anti-war, you're an entrepreneur. Uh, now you're, you're into, to, you're working with solar technology. Um, there's, a, there's a weird thing that goes on on the internet. And I don't know if it's bots or if it's some sort of like, you know, uh, industrial propaganda, but, but I have people go, you know, like solar is garbage, blah, blah, blah. Like I have people say one, that it, that it leads to a greater carbon footprint, which seems like nonsense because you know, if you're just if you're just burning coal, your entire externality, like you, you, it, it is all going straight to externality. Um, so it, if, if something created more of that, it would automatically cost more than just leaving it as a raw resource. So that can't be true. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but the other thing is, my thought is, OK, so solar doesn't solve everything. I don't think anybody really suggests that it does. Like why, like why be anti-solar? Like why ever do that? <laughs> right. I'd love to talk about the distinction here. So I'm with you on it's not going to solve everything. Uh, in fact, you shouldn't be anti-solar, but you can't think that it's a silver bullet for sure. Um, if if we were to use um, fossil fuels, we'd run out in 40 years, right? There's there's a limit there. So you have to think about- I, I actually don't think that's true, but but I'll, I'll let you go on. Sure. Well, they're-, they're finite, right? Or even if they were to be produced by the earth, they're not being produced at the rate that we're using them, not even close. So um, the alternatives that kind of the mainstream Democratic Party would suggest is like, well, wind and solar, but they're rarely looking squarely in the eyes, this fact that uh, Harvard professor David Keith says it would take up to 72% of our land to generate all the energy we need with uh, renewables, wind being way worse, around 72%. Hi, Sherry. What's up? Are you going to be tied up for a while? Because uh, there's a girl on the phone. That yeah, probably like another hour. Solar. Yeah, thank you. 72% um, of our land with wind and 6% with solar. So that's kind of an obscene amount of land. Um, and we need to be thinking about what new technologies lay on the horizon. I think there are ones that are on the brink of commercialization. Uh, you might be interested in looking at uh, Hydrino technology, which we could talk about. I don't know a ton about, but um, really fascinating stuff. Or there's breakthroughs in geothermal that could be game changers. But if we're left with the technology that we have, then it would be insane not to invest in nuclear, thorium-based nuclear. Um, so, yes, I think we need solar and renewables to be play a part obviously i like care care about that but it it's insane to think they can do it all for sure yeah yeah um i i, I think it'll have to be uh, pieces of other things one of the things that i i worry that people don't think about enough is you know do we really need all the machinery of government and the banking system uh, a lot of people don't realize this but um approximately 70 percent of all the energy that gets used is government military banking enterprise banking yeah, you would. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's surprising. That's uh, such a big. Well, deal. I mean, it, ultimately, um, I I don't even speak about one without speaking about the other two, because they they exist as a um, you know as a sort of a trinity of centralization, uh, is one way to, uh, perhaps to put it. But um, uh, they none of them operate without each other. They might as well be considered a unit. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Um, yeah, so I, the background is, you know, what do I care about? What's my, what's my platform? Um, clearly, you know, I, I have some credibility with kind of questioning the, the war machine. I have some credibility with energy and, and environmental issues. 
Um, but my main concern is that we don't have a political system that can solve complex, difficult problems. We're in a we're in a treadmill of polarization and exactly what I think you were talking about, like the military and the banking system being completely wedded. Why would that be? I think we're coming to the uh, common ground in the first place because of how we're handling COVID. Everything became a propaganda war. Science became... Um, it feels like we have the nicest corrupt system. Like uh, we, we have a corrupt system that is very good at looking um, upstanding and polite and friendly. Um, but it does feel like it has not changed in a long time. And, and and I think that everybody who who, you know, digs in a little bit and finds out, you know, some of the nature of the corruption, you know, looks back and says, well, you know, th this must have been here for a long time. Um, but, yeah, it is difficult. So, you know, one one question I would have is, is how do you like, you know, you're, you're one man, you know, you break in. And, and maybe, maybe a bunch of people follow you. I hope I hope a lot of people do. I hope that uh, I, there was somebody in, in New Jersey who ran for a truck driver who ran for governor or something. Did, did he fall just short? Like, I mean, like it was like neck and neck with the voting. Um, I, I, I don't know the exact details of that, but I, I think that a lot of Americans could step forward and run and that people are so disillusioned with the people that we you know, we're, we're told are our leaders and we're just told they are, you know, there's almost no sense to a lot of the people who get selected. And, you know, I, I worry that it is a system of, of, you know, bribery, blackmail and extortion. Mm -hmm. Now, if you go in, what keeps somebody from attacking you privately? Uh, okay. So first of all, I'm a big fan of term limits. So uh, just to prevent myself from becoming completely detached from why I ever intended on going into the first the first place as well as um you know if I do become corrupt <laughs> at least I'll go go away in a short amount of time um but I think a, a commitment to um you you can you can only ever take someone at their word so far unless you've seen that they're willing to pay a price thank you Shri for um for what they believe in. If if they're if they're not willing to pay a price for it, then why would you why would you give them really anything other than the slightest benefit of the doubt? And I think as someone who has basically risked my life for uh, questioning the, the military industrial complex while in its jaws, right? Like that that they, they had the opportunity to charge me with treason. That's a you know punishable by death kind of offense. Uh, that kind of shows that someone is is cares more about their values than even their own life if, if you haven't shown that at any time um and i, and I would i would count you I, anybody who has kind of stuck their neck up uh professionally above the fray for covid did a very similar thing so if you haven't will, been willing to do something that's unpopular uh it, something that could cost you something that you really truly value then um Maybe you shouldn't be stepping into this kind of role in the first place. That's that's one test. Um, I there's another test that I like, um, which uh, unfortunately with uh, Washington D.C. being what it is, it doesn't happen as much as it should. But I think people should think in terms of if we go about restructuring government one day, you know, how do we go about restructuring it? And I'm a believer that when you have to look all your neighbors in the eyes, there's certain there there there's a different set of limits to your decisions. You know, there's a, there's a different uh, degree to which you might consider selling out, you know, your fellow citizen 
if you have to look everyone in the eye every day. Uh, there's only so far you get on that road. And I think that that people allow members of Congress to become more corrupt because it's kind of like a big game. It's it's a, a multipolar prisoner's dilemma. Are you familiar with the prisoner's dilemma? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it, it, for every one person, if their congressman isn't fighting to get their piece of the pie for their state or their community, then that community is just paying into the system without getting anything else. So if they're not, you know, negotiating for jobs, uh, negotiating for a new factory or whatever that comes with some bill, you know, some some piece of the pork that comes through the system. And then I, I think what happens is step by step, especially these people who stay in Congress for 10, 20, 30 years, um, which I which I, I agree with you about term limits. I was always sort of like uh, it was it wasn't as big a deal to me, but I see it as a bigger deal now. Um, but uh, you know, having having keeping people from going so far that people just dismiss, like you know, out of sight, out of mind. Sure, these corrupt things happen, but I'll vote for my guy anyway because he brought twelve hundred jobs with that factory. Well, yeah, just like Congress had a few years ago, I think like a six percent approval rating, or some abysmally low percent approval rating. But everybody's individual district, you know, it was way above that. It was always you know fifty percent. You know, they, I like my guy, but the whole thing is screwed up. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, everybody hates Congress but loves their congressman, and that's that's kind of out of whack. That tells you that we have a a strange poison system. So um, I'm I'm glad to you know every, every time I meet somebody like you who's running, I, I supported um, uh, Brian Tyson down in Imperial Valley, in Southern California. Um, I I didn't know whether or not he would have a chance to win in such a heavily Democratic district, um, but um, you know it, it wasn't to be this time. But uh, I I'm hoping he'll run again in 2024. Oh, the, he was the, the doctor from um, California. Okay, yeah, I didn't know. Yeah, he was yes, That's awesome. yes, uh, one of the two doctors from um, you know it was his uh, urgent care clinics mm -hmm. down in Imperial. Valley that have treated like 12,000 COVID patients without anyone dying. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I thought his story would um, would propel the community a little bit better. But the way the districts are down there, Riverside, which is above Imperial County, just north of Imperial County, has much more of the voters. So Imperial County, where he had his best support, uh, was a little more difficult. But I, I think that if if there are, I, I think that there may this may be a moment we may be able to see a lot of people who are independent or independent minded, at least independent of the system, as we're describing it. Um, I think there's a chance that we could see dozens. Dozens would be enough to do a lot of things. Wouldn't yeah. shock me if there were if there were an even larger wave than that. Yeah, but, I think uh, you're speaking to a couple things. One is you can't be so naive to think that one person is going to go and like create a magic uh, cascade. Um, but also, if there's precedent that someone can buck the uh, the two party system and find a viable and replicable way of doing that, which you know, if I win, maybe there are lessons that that transcends whatever district. Um, which, at the very least, the simplest is critique the two party system and have the integrity to not run. Like you know, obviously, I ran in a primary, but I've I declined any resources from the Republican Party, even though I won the uh, Republican Party's primary, and I've committed to not caucusing with either party <laughs> or with both parties cyclically. Um, so if, if, if it's as simple as that, maybe that there's uh, something people can, can learn and replicate in other districts. One of the reasons why I was looking forward to coming on, Matthew, is because, um, and I hope this doesn't like 
uh, set people's hair on fire too much, but to do some interviewing of you, because I, I consider you such a resource. Um, I know most of the time we do your podcast and you, you just ask the, the new guy a, a bunch of questions, but I'm sure people would not mind hearing some questions of you, which um, I consider you someone whose opinion I would, I would deeply respect on, uh, and just give me an update. You dove deep into the military. Um, okay, and, and this is what you would be doing as a member of Congress, is uh, is figuring out what's going on in the world. So, okay, um, uh, I'll answer some questions for you. Yeah, so just get, catch me up to speed on what that, it's called the DMED, right? Uh, the Defense Medical Epidemiological Database. Yes, so you you first got through the first layer where there was testimonies to Congress and there, were, there seemed to be a data signal about things being greatly out of the ordinary. And you kind of went, okay, beyond just that surface to find, okay, maybe that signal actually was um, just data error, but there's something more to this story. And um, at, at this stage, right when that was happening, the world changed its entire focus from uh, COVID to Ukraine, right? All overnight. Right, right. <laughs> um, and so I stopped following it as much too, because I, I just always felt like I needed to be equipped with the most up-to-date information. But because, um, you know, I, I honestly had the freedom to, to talk about things other than COVID, um, <laughs> I, I took it. So sure. but I'm still really interested and I know it's going to come up in debates. Actually, that's a, the reason why I reached out to you in the first place, because I know COVID will prop my you know, unconventional views on COVID by the mainstream standards are going to come up. And I wanted to say, hey, could you help if I get called to a debate, sure. would you be on yeah. my team? So let's just talk about some of the things that you would want to bring up in a debate uh, to in inform people, but with the most, uh, I guess, debate friendly, right? So credible, but also easy to understand where you don't have to go 10 layers deep. Although we can go 10 layers deep here, but, you know, just keeping that in mind. Yeah. Uh, it, and, and I'll tell you this, it's complicated enough that that I almost um, cringe at starting the conversation every time I do. Um, but I'll, I, my worry is that there are two sides blasting out their own propaganda and that they're both wrong. Yeah. And this is frustrating. And my findings didn't get uh, the support that um, that I think they should have. But so here's what happened on. Um, uh, I think it was February 8th or 10th, um, Robert Malone called me and asked if I would uh, you know, jump into uh, looking at the data. Uh, and I'd seen the RINS presentation during the Johnson hearing saying that, that um, you know, injury and illness was up a thousand percent, you know, cancer's up 300%. And I didn't know, you know, like a thousand percent. I mean, like, like that's wow. Like how, how could anybody not notice this and be screaming about it? But, but I didn't really know the state of the military. You know, I saw the whistleblowers. Um, but anyway, I, I kind of went in with an open mind. I doubted the DOD's explanation. The DOD said this is all due to a glitch. And I very much doubted that, but I did find, I, I do think that there was a glitch and yeah. this is where I, where uh, I diverge from a lot of the people who are talking about this. Are Which is why I, why I respect you. One of the big reasons <laughs> to not just go along with what your audience might want to hear. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you've got to focus on the findings. And if what you if what you want to do is use those findings for something like a fraud lawsuit, 
then what you have to do is really get to the truth, right? You, you've got to go detail, you've got to do the detail work and figure out what actually went on and be able to point to in the system what happened. So um, it, it does appear that there's a glitch. That doesn't mean that there aren't safety signals. There are some safety signals with or without the glitch, you know, um, but they, they updated the data after the glitch. And what happened is I wanted to know, you know, whose numbers are right. The numbers presented um, by rinse at the hearing or the DOD post glitch. So what I did is I went and found prior data and I probably would have found this eventually, but we were fortunate to find it like almost right away, um, even though it's it's um, kind of buried in what you might think of as a military health trade magazine at health.mil. Um, but we found it and, and we found like once a year in one of these publications, they do it monthly. Once a year, they they have a snapshot of the big picture of the database. When I say big picture, I mean, like there are these ICD-10 codes, these you know medical diagnostic billing codes. Uh, you can't put all of them in any kind of an article. There are just thousands and thousands. Right. Uh, you've got major diagnostic categories and there are something like, you know, well, there are 26 letters of the alphabet and they mostly, you know, uh, organize them into uh, A through Z, but then with numbers attached afterward. But then they, uh, you know, they, they group them and they organize them and they, and they list like the top 18 categories every year. It's mm -hmm. not every single injury and illness, but it's most of them. So you get a pretty good sense of what these numbers represent and you get to see what they publish every year. And every year they publish like three years up until this year, actually. And this this has gotten interesting. Um, let's say like the, the May 2020 would have 2019 numbers, but also 2017 and 2015 numbers. So you can kind of see they, they stagger it a year, which is something that um, is sometimes done, especially in like old school statistics magazines uh, to, to broaden out the time frame a little bit. Um, but they would, you know, they would post three years of data and you can see, you know, trends, you can see what's going on a little bit. Um, anyhow, we found that data and we compared it and it looked much more like the post glitch you know, when the DOD said, hey, we've corrected the database now, now the numbers should be correct. It looked close, much closer to their numbers than the numbers Rinse presented. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this, like what actually went on. Well, as I looked at the, the post-glitch numbers, you know, we, we could still run queries and see that the queries we were running after supposedly that they'd fixed the glitch, the data should be right now, but I could look at this trade magazine for the you know major diagnostic categories and see oh the new numbers are a, a little bit bigger they raised them up about you know 13 14% on average i mean for some categories it's 6 for some it's 50 but um you know uh, they they raised the numbers up from previous years and this is the 2016 through 2020 data and you can see it for 2016 through 2019 unfortunately there's only one publication for 2020 so you don't get a comparison there but i i think that they probably just did it as a package deal that that, that there was some sort of a, a change to the 2016 through 2020 numbers and that that warrants an investigation right if you change that that's raising up the denominator when you do like a current to past comparison which if anybody's looking at safety signals, that's the way they'd be doing it. They'd be comparing 2021 data coming in to what happened in 2016 through 2020. So if they raised up the 2016 through 2020 numbers, it would lower the percentage increases that we're seeing, right? And you don't, you don't need shock numbers like 300% or 1,000%. Um, you know, it, if you see cancers going up 20%, that's a big deal. Right. You need to figure out why that's true. Is it just because there was less testing for a year? Okay, let's you know let's dig in a little further. But um, there there are some that are startling hematological disorders. That's the blood disorders. 
And we saw going from 2020 to 2021, what people were dying from shifted from respiratory toward more circulatory disorders, you know, more pulmonary embolism, more, um, more strokes, more uh, heart attacks, uh, myocarditis, you know, and, and we could see that in the DMED data um, that, uh, that they changed the, it looked like somebody changed the prior data to make 2021 look not so bad. Okay, so did that happen? Or was is there some other explanation? Finally, mm -hmm. the medical surveillance monthly report—that's the the trade magazine, the health trade magazine. They they said, uh, "Oh, this is actually just us inserting prior telehealth medical data." Except that doesn't make sense to me because what they inserted was like a flat curve, and tell and telemedicine has been like growing exponentially the last few years. So, you know, I'm I'm like, huh? You know, uh, somebody somebody needs to to get into an investigation, ask for all the records, ask for all the emails. Um, and there's a company that that handles this data outside of the U.S. military um, called Unisant um, that, you know, all, everything that they handle should be, um, you know, somebody in Congress should bring in. And so, you know, I, we should be foying all, all of this stuff. But I haven't gotten a lot of support. And I think that the reason I haven't gotten a lot of support is because, um, you know, the lawyers and, and maybe some subset of the whistleblowers felt embarrassed or there is something like a psychological operation going on. And I think or it may be a combination of the two. I think that, that some of the whistleblowers may be misled about what's actually going on with the data and how it's being used because the, the original numbers from rents and, uh, and yeah, the whistleblower, that those, those, those numbers, which don't make any sense when you look at past data, they just don't, they're nonsensical, but they're being blasted around social media. They're being promoted in, uh, you know, uh, like all, what had been the alternative media but which is really you know sort of the small right-wing media um I, and I, I hate to use that term right wing because that's not really the way that i think about much of anything in politics but but it feels like um like it's just a competing propaganda network at times right yeah and and such that um distribution of information is hard to track down right nobody says where they got you know these numbers from or why or whether they've looked at a single query or whether they've heard you know, my research into all this. Mm -hmm. And I really worry that that um, what we're seeing is possibly within the military, because I mean, and a lot of people don't know this, but the US military runs by far the largest propaganda, you know, uh, operations in the world, you know, just what, you know, pe people talk about Russian trolls or whatever, but you know, what goes on at Fort Bragg alone would, you know, uh, the, the Russians would have a budget for that. <laughs> right. Um, so I, I, I worry that this is what's what's going on. So, you know, I can't shout loud enough and I don't get enough support. Um, you know, hopefully one of the hopefully somebody like Children's Health Defense, um, you know, they started putting together FOIA stuff several months ago, but uh, I, I don't know where that's going. Uh, you know, several times they've emailed me, asked me to like review documents. I'm like, I'm like, this, this is this is where my expertise ends. <laughs> um, but hopefully somebody will you know, get some information at some point, but yeah, I think uh, somebody, somebody jumped in and said, uh, you know, controlling the opposition. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, 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 I'm frustrated. You know, that's all I can say. Um, I, and it's one of the reasons why I'm glad uh, somebody like Liam <laughs> is running outside of the, the party system. But I, I think we need, and, and I do think that there are good people who would run as Republicans or Democrats. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I think that, uh, it may be tougher to run as a Democrat at the moment in the current environment. Um, it didn't used to be this way 
you know, 30 years ago. But uh, I, I think there's a the cancel culture level there would make it much harder for someone to take a stand against the system. And what a lot of people don't know is that the Democrats took over Wall Street in the uh, the whole mortgage bond crisis that pretty much flipped the power. Uh, and, and if you go through the top 50 financial firms in the country, you'll see almost none of them giving ex exclusively to Republicans. And when you when you see them give to Republicans, it's usually people on the just the finance committees. Yeah. And, and that's it. So, um, you know, the Democrats are now the corporate Wall Street party. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Um, but I, I it, it is what it is. And we have a crisis on our hands. So. So if you were um, to be on a debate between the categories of like vaccine safety, vaccine effectiveness, um, masks, lockdowns, what areas do you think would be the most important and what kind of top level uh, points do you think would be the easiest to convey and, and support in that kind of dynamic. Oh, okay, I'm, I'm sorry, what, what positions would be the easiest to support? Well, like, like, would you, um, for example, say, uh, undermining or calling into question, is a better way of saying it, the uh, mainstream point of view on vaccine safety is that something that you think would be one of the uh important things to focus on in a debate that's centered around these kind of heterodox views on COVID? because you know where, where i stand publicly on my website is pretty tame like the great barrington declaration version of like there was a much saner way to deal with covid uh, by focusing on protecting the vulnerable, there was no need to do lockdowns, mandates, and censorship and propaganda. Um, and I think, you know, I, I feel safe just because of the massive credibility between Martin Koldorf and Jay Bhattacharya and Sunetra Gupta, Harvard, and Oxford, etc. But um, I think inevitably, it people on the other side who are still fervently you know <laughs> with the, the covetopian perspective would say like hey listen these these vaccines were were silver bullets essentially um and there's i think a lot of evidence coming out that the, the effectiveness has waned rapidly that's why you need five boosters in a year or five shots total in a year. I, I think that's an illusion i think that there's zero efficacy yeah. I think that is an entire entirely a statistical illusion. I'll talk about that uh, in just yeah, a moment. Yeah. Somebody asked a question. I'm just going to answer this real quick. Uh, what was Malone's reaction to um, my my DMED work? He hasn't said anything, and, and I've talked to him on the phone about it. But uh, you know, publicly, he said, uh, as far as I can tell, zero, nothing at all, and that opens the door for the possibility of um, you know propaganda. So that bothers me. So um, yeah, that that I have I have several critiques of. Uh, Robert Malone on that level. Um, you know, I, I hope that um, I can remain friendly with him and and still say that I think that he's not handling that that well. But uh, uh, and and you know, um, speaking of which, um, I'm going to throw this out. Um, I, I've recently um, I've been encouraging people to you know agree where you want and disagree where you want. 
right? Yeah. Um, like uh, uh, Jay Bhattacharya and Martin Koldorf. There have been a number of things that I've agreed with them uh, during the pandemic, but a few that I've disagreed with them. I think um, I think both Martin and Jay were on board the idea of, hey, let's let's vaccinate like 50 million people and then not everybody else, right? And I, I, I go back, I look at that and I'm like, you know what, These, the, the trial report was nonsense to begin with. When, when you see the, the red flags that you see in a trial report like that, um, you know, the uneven exclusions, um, the fact that uh, that they said everything would be done transparently and immediately began to back even up. Even the two-week uh, hiatus of, yeah. uh, you know, that grace period where they don't count anything, you know, like that, is that, is there any precedent for doing something like that? Um, no, I, I don't think so. Um, uh, one way or another, um, what we should not be thinking about is efficacy measured in any one particular way. It's overall effect is, is what we should really be paying attention to, like an overall cost benefit analysis and, and vaccine efficacy would only be one piece of that, right? You've got to add everything together. Um, and they wouldn't even say for, for the longest time what the placebo was. And now in documents, they say it's saline solution, but I'm not sure I believe that because the, the adverse events in, in the placebo arm were off the charts. Um, you know, most, most drugs don't test, you know, uh, that kind of adverse event. So I saw, so, I saw Med have a SETI's uh, talk on his critique of the trial. And as an anesthesiologist saying, you know, I, I don't know how many times I've given saline and I've never seen the kind of rate of adverse effects that, that they're claiming. So yeah, yeah, that seems a red flag to me too. Yeah. And, and, and here, here's a big one that I only discovered um, a few weeks ago. And uh, this was uh, after several weeks of, of back and forth emails with Chris Masterjohn. Um, I, I'm not sure if either one of us knew exactly what to make of it, but we looked at like the, the you know, testing results in hospitals for, you know, COVID-like illness versus COVID. And it really just felt like, you know, for the, for the symptoms, you have about the same proportion of people in the hospital as if you had zero efficacy. It's just that they were broken out into these two groups, COVID and COVID-like illness. And so there were more unvaccinated people by proportion in the uh, COVID and more unvaccinated people in the COVID-like illness. But if you wash it all together, it looks like zero efficacy. And so you know we were, we were opining over whether or not all the vaccine does is prevent a positive test. Hmm. And, and I, I did some research into this and I found out that in the past, um, it was con it was considered part of the the you know vaccine testing process. You needed to find out whether your test was confounded by the virus itself or by the disease itself. Mm -hmm. They skipped that step. They skipped that step, which means they don't have valid results. And you know, I, I, in my opinion, all of these people who are supposed to be experts should have pointed that out on day one. We did not even have a valid trial run. And people just go, well, we needed to do this fast because, you know, Operation Warp Speed, we needed to do this fast because it was a crisis. Okay, but that doesn't mean your trial results are valid, you know, if you don't know whether or not there's confounding there. And, and I think that the, the entire waning efficacy is actually the vaccine confounding of the testing wearing off. It, it makes sense when you look at all of the data, all of the data holistically. That's what it looks like to me. So, um yeah, I, I, I you know, uh, uh, I, Taz, uh, you know, mentioned influenza like illness. I, I think that, that in a sense, um, you know, there may have been some sort of a, a trial run of fooling people with these these terms, you know, um, influenza like illness. We used to define a disease by the uh, by the symptoms and uh, whatever the ideology was. But 
Mm -hmm. um, somebody says RFK Jr. says in these tests, placebo is never saline. So um, I, I've checked this with some friends. Um, it, it, some vaccines are tested with saline solutions. Some are not. If you're testing a new vaccine to compare it versus an older one, that's where they use the older one as, uh, as a placebo. Though I do think they should actually do some of both. Um, I, I think that that could mask the fact that older, um, the older vaccines are not as good as we're told that they are. Um, I, you know, digging into this, there's so much shenanigans. I, I had no idea. I, I really thought that I was probably just helping with statistics for a few months and, and, you know, <laughs> going back to my day job or whatever that was. But, uh, uh, it, it is, it is a long, dark rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of day job, um, you have a lot of background in education. You probably don't talk about that that much on this podcast because <laughs> uh, the rabbit hole has, has grabbed you by the, the ankles. Um, yeah. So I plan to do more of that in the future. Awesome. But yeah, let's take advantage of it now. So, uh, you had a magic wand and you could influence the things we're talking about, things we're investing in, in terms of education, what, what's most important to you? Okay. <laughs> um, you know, this is great. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to let this continue this whole reverse uh, interview thing, because this is what you should be doing, uh, you know, in Congress is, is asking the people that you trust what their views on all these things. Okay. So look, education is really, really complicated. It's hard to have this, co um, this conversation without making some people feel offended. I think there are a lot of people like teachers who go into education who are very well-meaning, but are in a system that, that disarms a lot of the goodness that they intend and they step into a system that is, it, it, it's designed for failure. It's designed to weaken people's creativity and agency and get used to a bell telling them where to go next. And, um, and you know, I, I do think that kid, that there are some fundamentals that kids need. Uh, I think that, you know, uh, that can be done in multiple ways. You don't need this, you know, big prison school building. Um, you don't need seven hours a day, um, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic. And then from there, people figure out what they're interested in. Um, and almost any adult who's ever been an entrepreneur or, or, or you know, chosen some path um, that, that wasn't like you're supposed to make a selection next um, can tell you is the, the moment you start learning about something that you're just excited about, um, it's such a different experience than anything that you ever do at school that you dig in in a different way. You know, um, you, you wind up getting on eBay and, and bidding on rare books and you wind up going to the library and, and you know, uh, thinking that you're going to be there for two hours and have a three day project with, you know, going into old microfish and, and <laughs> um, it, it, education is something that you mostly do to yourself. You just need some guidance through the basics. You need to learn to read and write. You need the, the basic arithmetic up to a certain level so that when you start um, handling the abstractions of algebra and, um, you know, learning how to use a ruler and compass and, and, you know, all of that, that, that you're ready. Um, most of it, um, and, and yeah, one of the, one of the big experiments called the Benjamin Bloom experiment showed that um, if you took the teacher's time and, and began to apportion it out in one-on-one -on -one sessions with the students, that you wound up with two orders of magnitude improvement in the results than if they just stood up at the front of the class and just taught the students. You two know? orders of magnitude? Yes, it, it, it's gigantic. Yeah, exactly. Your your fifty percent student, you know, your your average student uh, began performing as if they were all like just shy of 98th percentile. So it's a little bit above two standard deviations, I think. Um, 
yeah, it, it's so overwhelming. No variable has ever been pointed to that has that kind of an effect. Um, and and yeah, intuitively, every one of us knows this. Every one of us knows that we learned way more in the 10 minutes with like one good mentor or teacher just a, or a discussion. Hey, you know, can you show me how to do this? Um, and, and somebody who, who cares about the process shows you and walks you through. Um, I mean, like th that 10 minutes is is worth a whole school day, at least without all the drawbacks. Right. So I, I think that we should be thinking about how to redesign the entire educational process. I think that that children should be spending more time with their parents, first of all. Uh, I think that um, that uh, wisdom should be more of like a, a principled focus, you know, not like. Can you define wisdom? Um, well, wisdom is so hard to define. Um, it, 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 hmm. I've, I've always thought of it. I mean, there's a couple ways, good ways, interesting ways to think about wisdom, but one of the simpler ones is like information aggregated is knowledge, knowledge aggregate, aggregated and usable and organized is intelligence and intelligence employed to worthwhile things in a, in a like aggregating up intelligence is wisdom to use your intelligence for worthy. Um, yeah. And I, I don't know if that's a definition, but I like it as an explanation, right? As like a, you know, here's where this fits into the world. So, um, you know, I'm just going to go with that. I, I do think that it is, it's the top of the pyramid in terms of the way that it fits into the world. Everything that we do, uh, our actions and what we learn and what we're, you know, uh, you know, promoting moving forward. Um, and I think that by, by leaving religion out of education, which which I get it, you know, you have public institutions, you don't want to be pushing religion on people. Um, I agree with that. But by by leaving it out of the process for seven full hours a day, you know, can, can we leave it out of the process for two full hours, but allow for um, parents to be imparting the wisdom, um, whether it's it's their wisdom of their lives or the wisdom of, of their church or the wisdom of wherever they get their wisdom, wherever they get it. Um, but I, I just don't think that that happens, uh, much in school and, and in school it, it's, it's so much, uh, you know, it's, it's reading books and taking tests a lot of the day. Sure. There are projects here and there, but a lot of the day could be projects. And if you let kids run around and find their own projects and build their own small businesses and, and do all the things that could be done, I mean, you know, age seg segregation in the first place. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not a fan of, of the way that's done. Um, I, I think that that I think that it results in cruelty. I think that that because when you take out the natural community, the natural tribe, uh, and you put people in the school setting, which I think is painful for a lot of them, you naturally get people looking for status by causing pain, and mm -hmm. I think that, that that is a drawback that almost nobody points out. People point out that, you know, you could have the 11 year old who in, in one task is, is able to work with the 13 and 14 year olds, or you could have, you know, the 15 year olds getting time learning um, how to teach just naturally, you know, because some 10 year old comes along and says, how do I tie this knot, you know, or, or whatever it happens to be. Um, we, we lose so much. I mean, I, I'd, I'd want to make a list before I'd even have longer conversation, but we just lose so much from from doing it in this strangely narrowly organized way. What What do you think about the guild system? That was kind of the the way it was done before there was public education, right? Where there was education, it was it was in guilds. It was yeah. in families kind of passing down skills and in a larger community of people who had a place 
for even a 10 year old, right? Yeah. <laughs> like they were involved in the real world. And, they and you know, they weren't excluded from the real world for 18 full years. A guild system or a craft system right. can be can be just fine so long as the rest of the systems are healthy, right? Like I, I think that you need for people to be able to um, you need a university system, I think, for people who want to, you know, focus and study for two, three, four years or something hardcore focus. Um, I think that uh, the guild system should be, you know, interacting with the public square, should be interacting with the university system. Um, I'd have to think through a little bit more before I, I, I go real far with that. Uh, I, I've always liked the idea of, of people having a more natural path. Uh, I don't know why we've cut that off so much. Maybe it's simply a matter of, hey, we shipped all the jobs to China or we shipped, we shipped a, a, enough of them that it was less worth making the investment. But um, I mean, you know, you, you talk to people who grew up in the 50s and, you know, they, they would leave school and, and go to, you know, work somewhere very often, you know, um, whether that was working in a shop or it was working, making something, but lots of people did. Um, you know, I have, ex um, on my wife's side of the family, um, uh, there's some farming, uh, some farming and, and, you know, those kids would come home and raise, uh, you know, bucket calves, um, and, uh, you know, pay for college eventually with those bucket calves. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, like it, it, I, I don't think that it needs to be overdefined, right? Like, I think that if you just let the system happen for the most part, that it tends toward what it needs to be. And when there's something that's missing, somebody brings it up in the public square. And then you talk about it then and you figure out what needs to get plugged into what. Mm -hmm. So are you saying that a lot of the success you've seen in your own uh, kind of private practice of education was about allowing students to find the things that they had innate passion and curiosity about and just feeding that, doubling down? Yeah, so um, it, I planned to build a bigger school system in order to, to make it more complete, in order to get moved toward that. Um, what I wound up doing, um, because I, I didn't get to the expansion part, uh, because it is very difficult to compete against a monopoly, right? Um, economically, you are, um, you're against a wall, and if there are any any kinds of mistakes, um, you know, uh, an employee who, who, you know, wrecked something or, um, or a fight with the state or something like that. And I had a little bit of both of those. Um, any, anything that you have that, that brings it down makes it very hard to, to run and expand. Just running math classes and a little bit more. We had some debate classes, some robotics classes, you know, um, but 90% math, just running math classes um, was a job that often kept me up till, you know, three in the morning. So, yeah, this should give an idea. It was harder than working on Wall Street, not even close. Uh, you know, um, and, and I worked in the wake of the long-term capital management crisis. Why? Why? That's, that's a that's a, um, a volcanic statement. It's harder than Wall Street. Tell me why. Um, because two percent of the parents are ninety percent of the headaches. Yeah. And uh, what you're competing with is its own headache in a big, big way, right? Um, like people would go to, uh, I, I would sometimes like fall out of favor with teachers without knowing any reason why, right? And I'm like, you know, there's some politics, there's some undercurrent going on. Whereas I was friendly with this person, suddenly I'm not friendly with this person, what happened? Um, and it, it was 
you know, you can't find out, but you do know that you're, you're butting heads with a system. And it may be because I wrote a blog post saying, you know, um, what the school spends per learning hour per student, what I spend per learning hour per student. And, you know, the, the kids would come and like, a lot of kids would take like their very first class with me, um, you know, 10 weeks, two hours at a time, 20 hours, and they would say, wow, I learned more here than I learned, you know, in all of school combined for a year. And, uh, you know, I was, I was always, you know, very proud of that. I heard that statement over and over just from like so many independent, uh, you know, especially first class takers, <clears throat> but, you know, I'd advertise things like that. And, and I think that it became more and more clear to people that I was trying to introduce another model that could replace the current system. And people get fearful of that. Yeah. Right. And, and just, and I, I think people getting fearful of that shows you that there is, that there is something wrong with the system because people um, who have been in it for a while want to protect what it is. And, you know, they, they can't even imagine that maybe it can be done in an economically good way, you know, without this very centralized um, process. I, I, if you want to just marinate on that in the, the days after this, that issue of people being afraid of something that threatens thing this that they don't like but they know the devil they know uh that's what i'm running up against big time right it's, yeah you know i i have reforms to the political process as a whole that gives people a little bit more power which is scary right but you know you want to balance power with wisdom with and, you know, and that, that right there that's that's exactly why i'm dropping everything right now and I, I i've been in this game for an extended period of time which I, I still ask myself almost every day, like, am I going to go, you know, do more Bitcoin stuff? Am I going to go build another education company? Am I going to go? I, I, there's actually something that I may step aside and split my time to start doing soon, but I'm not going to say it out loud. But, uh, you know, what you just said, I wonder if this is that moment, whether it happened accidentally or even had a, a push. <coughs> Excuse me. I wonder if this is the moment where enough people are, are so shaken up that they stop falling back on what they know, right? That they stop hanging out with the devil they know because things are so critical. You know, we, um, more and more people's eyes are open to the fact that, um, you know, we can, we can have essentially, you know, what happened is we had fake trials run. And that once you learn the trial process, once you learn what has to be done to say that you have a valid result and that that was not done, we don't have valid results ever. And yet they push this on billions of people and on children. And, you know, um, despite the signal of myocarditis, which we are almost entirely certain that they knew about. If they didn't know about it, it is literally because they said, don't even show us the data. That would be the only way they didn't know about the, the myocarditis. Because that signal was growing in January of last year. Is that something you know because of the Brooke Jackson? Um... No, um, I... Uh, I heard it from Robert Malone when we were in San Juan last year um, that he he knew somebody at Oracle who was looking at the signals. But uh, the um, in the DMED data, uh, if you look at the myocarditis charts, you see um, immediate jump in January moving forward, and you see January through through March it goes down a little bit. But then, like when you're getting close to the mandates, July August it skyrockets again, and that's where it hits a peak. So, yeah, uh, and. <laughs> You know, um, somebody, uh, uh, a viewer says uh, it's now or never. Um, I, I, I think that may be the case for, pe for enough people. You know, if, if we may have a choice, 
do you want to go through, do you want to, you know, step forward into a future in which a very few people create reality, essentially? I mean, I, I just, I've started calling it the matrix. I think that's what it is. I think that that um, people's priors, their their instincts get futzed with. Um, <clears throat> they they have, they, you know, it, television is is barely short of mind control along with schooling along with having sort of a, a fake system of experts and corrupt politicians you know telling telling us things that are just absolutely not true over and over again they create cognitive dissonance that makes it hard for people to step away but it's also it's it's some stick it's some carrot people have these pensions you know pe businesses depend on the work that they do with the government oh, 30% of our money is from the government. If we lose that, we're not even making money anymore. They can't even imagine what the system would look like if, if that entire, you know, um, leech system were removed. You know, you're not making money because the government has contracts with you. You're making less money because the government has contracts with everyone, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and pe people don't think it through. But right now, more people are thinking it through. And there's Bitcoin. And I think that Bitcoin will disrupt the financial sectors enough that um, it will be a next level of shaking where people um, where people are, you know, front and center, face to face, thinking about whether or not uh, we can do something better. We can push back centralized propaganda, controlling perceptions of the world for a very few people who who gain all the rewards. Mm -hmm. So you think that right now is, is a crisis not to uh, lose the opportunity that it presents to hey you know what they say never let a good crisis okay. go to waste we might as well not right <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, yeah i think you you have to think lao tzu right you have to think um how do you game theory out game theory the game theorists right <laughs> you know like yeah. they're, they're playing hardball <clears throat> And you know, I'm going to take a minute to do this. I almost always forget, but um, I'm going to I'm going to point to one of our sponsors. Um, uh, 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 oh dear. Um, so uh, check out James Lyons Weiler's uh, uh, Education Institute. Um, uh, he, he's put together a nonprofit education organization trying to to create like a, a different thread where people can take you know college classes under experts, and it's. Um, P-K-E-E-D-U. And I, I always stop when I when I'm trying to remember what PKE stands for. Uh something knowledge. Uh <laughs> um, I, I can't remember at the moment, but I would encourage people to um, you know, I, I I've got a, a a place on my Substack where I point to uh PKE and I don't know how to use the the banners and the brands uh buttons well enough on this thing. So I'll leave that to Liam to do another time. But that's that's uh, that's education. That's other people creating institutions that are, you know, more like take what you want sort of system when you are ready and interested in immunology. Take a class in immunology when you are ready and interested in combinatorics because maybe you want to learn how to program better. You want to learn the structure of the functions that are being used and, and you go, hey, you know, I'll take that math class that that I, I had no idea why I would ever be interested in it. So, you know, I think that that will become uh, more and more common, but we do have a moment <clears throat> where we can begin to create a parallel economy because enough people are paying attention to how bad the current system is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think anything more 
viscerally smacks you in the face than the choice between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. As, <laughs> you should be doing so much better. And it's, it's just so easy to talk about that. Like everyone knows that it's a pretty dysfunctional system that gives those two options. So, yeah, and, and, and doesn't everybody look at this and go, you know, this just seems like theater, as in like actually scripted and organized. Like, you know, I, I have a hard time, you know, saying that I can't think that way. Like my instincts tell me that every time I see, you know, Biden in front of the red and, you know, the Nazi imagery and all that, like, like, come on, somebody didn't set that up. Be real. You know, what is that called? It's, it starts with a K. Uh, it's it's the word the Japanese use. For oh, kayfabe. Kayfabe, yeah. Kayfabe. yeah I, I don't know how to pronounce it either, but uh, yeah, absolutely. It, it does feel like that's everywhere. And I think that it has been for a very long time. Yeah. Um, in fact, um, God, you know, when I was working on Wall Street, I actually sat next to a lawyer at dinner one night. I, I sat up at the bar at, at, a, at a restaurant and, and we just started talking and he worked for one of the, uh, I can't remember which one it was, one of those magazines like Weekly World News or The Inquirer. Um, it wasn't either of those, but he worked for one of those and he was explaining to me, I mean, just, just flat out explaining how uh, like what catch and release stories were, which I'd never really understood or heard of, that, that like there would be true stories printed in these magazines. But what you do is you buy them as exclusives and then only you, you could hold on to them if you want. You could not even release them. You could just bury them or you could put it next to, you know, Bigfoot. Right. And just make it look as loony as possible. And and that that was, you know, part of the process of protecting politicians and um, and celebrities. And uh, and this guy, I mean, he had no qualms about this business. Right. But he told me he said something to me. He said, um, if you want if you want to understand politics, watch professional wrestling. <laughs> I mean, he just out and out said that to me. He said um, he said those people are learning every show they produce they're learning about how politics works better as in that that's your nudge unit before the nudge unit existed mm -hmm. right that's that's your behavioral insights team that's your behavioral economics you know the the the, the rednecks watching wrestling were the the people running that were doing behavioral economics decades before everybody else and yeah. and they did know it hmm. what why do you think that they knew it I, I think that they knew it because because in 1998, a lawyer was explaining to me that that's that's where you would best understand. I, you know, just the the way that he said it to me was was you know this is where this is where you get the information. This is where you where you see what they're scripting for for the public. They are trying things out and seeing how the public responds. They are mm -hmm. learning what people's emotional levers are. Right. They're they're seeing this entirely as like a game interface for um, for how to keep people entranced with the show. Yeah. Interesting. That's sounds about right. <laughs> uh, how much longer do we have? Uh, you know what? As far as I'm concerned, as long as you want, um, if, if uh, one hour, if, if you need to get back to uh, to solar business, uh, if you, uh, it sounded like you had some. Uh, uh, phone calls or orders coming in while we were talking. Um, we'll, we'll go ahead and wrap things up here. Do you have any like uh, closing statements, things that you want to say? Oh, um, well, I mean, I, I imagine your audience is pretty geographically dispersed, but yeah. all people that are interested in 
supporting the kind I, I my website is called rebirthdemocracy.com and there's a rebirthdemocracy.com yes okay and every uh, everybody send this episode to your favorite friend in vermont yeah and and and, and to your least favorite friend in vermont <laughs> send, send it to all of them um yeah so you can learn more about uh what i'm up to and deep renewal the deep reform that i think is necessary to solve problems better the uh quote that always comes to mind is abraham lincoln who said if i had eight hours to take down a tree i'd spend six hours sharpening my axe meaning you know we can approach the same problems of politics thinking a new face will change it or the new skill set or a new person but it's really a you know so much of our attention should go to what do the tools themselves lend to actually being able to accomplish and we have decades if not centuries of experience trying the same thing over and over like just play the uh the game of let's just get enough of the good guys in there to win right like that is the definition of insanity is trying over and over and expecting different results the, the system is set up for this kayfabe this professional wrestling drama to never really unfold into something more beautiful <laughs> it's meant to be a perpetual um gridlock and corruption and ownership of the by the elite and if we want to change that we need to think about not just like oh i like this guy he speaks my language but are the tools themselves being reimagined um thomas jefferson said if if there is no safe depository for the ultimate power of society other than the people themselves and if we deem them not enlightened enough to use power wisely, then it's not the remedy to remove their power from them. It is the remedy to make them wise through education. So the only way I can conceive of actually solving this problem is to make better tools, but to do that through having the people bypass politicians, right? And we can't just give people more power and expect that's always gonna turn out well unless we're in that same breath doing what we were talking about today is like reimagining education too so that the people wielding power are wiser and more loving so that's what i'm uh intending on achieving and representing vermont uh, and uh, you want to learn more about it rebirthdemocracy.com well best of luck thanks for joining us today liam thanks matthew it's a pleasure uh, all right um so I'll, I'll close this out i'm gonna make one more statement here um sometimes uh sometimes the leaders overplay their hand and if if what's happened in the world is um if they put out some uh, poison products or if they've mishandled the health crisis in some way very badly uh and if if the BRICS nations if uh brazil russia india china south africa that's that's the BRICS acronym they put together their own currency then the system that's been used to suck value from the rest of the world every time we print money, most people don't understand that that's, that's how it works. That's really who's, it's an implicit taxation every time they inflate the, the money supply. Um, it, if that part of the world leaves the system behind, then those, then those people who, who have had so much power lose uh, so much power that, that there is a new moment where uh, people who want the system to, to function in a robust way and in a way that's healthy for people have an opportunity. So let, let's poke at it. Let's figure out which opportunities work. Uh, Liam wants to, to try to do this from Congress and 
And uh, hey, you know, um, give me your support. Uh, uh, send it to your friends. Let people who might vote in Vermont know. And, um, you know, thanks for joining us today. And I'm slow at this, still learning how to use the studio. Here we go.